Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies at the United States Army War College. And today we're delighted to welcome H.R. McMaster, retired Lieutenant General, former National Security Advisor, and author of two important books, Dereliction of Duty and his latest book, Battlegrounds. Sir, welcome. Hey, Mike, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. That's great to have you. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you, uh, when an officer like you in the combat arms with obviously a decorated and promising career in the combat arms decided that you wanted to write books? (laughs) Well, you know, I was always interested in history and I studied international relations at West Point, but I took as many history electives as I could as part of that. And and, uh, you know, and then after you had these formative experiences in our army, uh, for me as a cavalry troop commander, uh, I was I was anxious to get back to school to learn more. You know, I think I think uh, it's a great aspect of a military career is is that you get to have these you know, challenging assignments and then you get a chance to reflect on them and prepare for the next level. And 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 being able to study history full time, you know, the Army gave me that gift, uh, the, the ability to do that at uh, at UNC Chapel Hill was a great experience. And and, you know, I fortunately I picked the topic that I got interested in, you know, and and I couldn't. I couldn't not write that book because I felt almost like a duty, a duty to tell that story about how and why Vietnam became an American war and, and what the role that, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the president's other senior civilian and military advisors played in the decisions that led to an American war in Vietnam. So did you go to North Carolina thinking that was the book you wanted to write or is that something that emerged as you went through your graduate education there? It really emerged as I went through my graduate education there. And of course, you know, one of the most important things you do is pick the topic that you're going to research and, and write about. So I called back to the history department at West Point. And I talked to Colonel Casey Brower, who was the, the acting head of the department that year. Uh, uh, Colonel Bob Doty was was on on sabbatical writing writing a book at the time. And I said, hey, what do you, what do you think I should write about? And he said, well, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm really interested in, at a topic, a topic at the nexus of of strategy development and policy development and the role of senior military officers and in providing best military advice. And, and he said, Hey, you, you should write about how and why Vietnam became an American war because the timing's right. He said the, the documents are now becoming automatically declassified. And by the way, you still have access to people. You can do interviews with them and you can get the, the, the context that will help you understand how that doc documentary record fits together. And, and you can tell a, an important story. And he said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of literature out there on it, but but that literature is not based on the wide body of evidence that's now available. So that was great advice, you know. And and uh, and he said, you know, don't maybe just pick a topic because nobody else has done it. He said, uh, you know, there might be a reason for that why nobody's done a topic. So if you're interested in the topic, uh, there's always room for a good history of the topic you're interested in. Yeah, that's what I tell people all the time. It has to be a topic you're passionate about. It has to be something that'll have you awake at three in the morning. It has to be something that'll that'll keep your brain going or else it's no use. Yeah, there, there's no Absolutely. other reason to write a book. So you, 
you had at North Carolina one of my mentors, uh, Professor Dick Cohn, who was just uh, incredibly influential to me as an informal kind of advisor, someone I would call for advice, talk to at conferences, uh, once in a while go down to Chapel Hill to see him. What, what did you learn through the writing process through him and your professors at UNC, and what did that process teach you? Well, they were just great professors at UNC. Dick Cohn, of course, foremost among them, my advisor, and and others, you know, Don Higginbotham, uh, Michael Hunt, uh, both of whom have passed, which I'm, I'm sad about. They were just tremendous, tremendous professors for me. Alex Rowland at Duke, Tammy Biddle, who's there at the, at the War College, was tre- tremendous as well. These were the members of, of my committee. I had a great committee. Mark Clodfelder, you know, who's a, a wonderful historian and a wonderful person. And, you know, they, they, I, you know, I think that Dick Cohn and, uh, understood that you know, I needed coming back, you know, coming into academia from the, from the field, I needed to, to orient myself. So he put, uh, he put me and, and another army officer uh, through, you know, through kind of a academic boot camp in the summer, right? We, we had to read a, uh, we had to read a book a week and write a, you know, I think a two page review on each book, which really teaches you how to write succinctly and, and concisely and analytically. And, and and that was a great experience to get just back into academia uh, and and to be prepared for the academic year. Uh, and then we had we took uh, we took a number of courses with various professors, but one of them was with Dick Cohn and with Alex Rowland. And I, I'll tell you that that was a great course. Uh, it was a it was a seminar on military history, and we read some the great books of military history and wrote reviews and and we were critiqued by. Dick Cohn and Alex uh, Roland in, in every paper we wrote, and it just made us better, you know. And and uh, and 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 uh, and I, I just think the overall graduate school experience was wonderful. I mean, Don Higginbotham was so funny, you know. After I took my written exams, he said, "Congratulations, HR. You now know more history than you will ever know." And uh, but it was just a very supportive environment. They were supportive of me writing writing the book, you know. I think you're. Your thesis for your master's is supposed to be maybe 40 pages. Mine was 248 pages because it was a, a jump start on the dissertation. And, and they were tolerant and supportive of, of doing that. And uh, it was just a great environment there at UNC Chapel Hill, as it is today, uh, with, with great professors there. Our friend, Mike uh, Wayne Lee, who's running a, an amazing program there, Joe Gladhar. I mean, it's a, it is a really it's a neat place to study history and military history in particular. Yeah, Don Higginbotham was another good good friend of mine. He was at the Air Force Academy a lot as a visitor when I was there. And to have mentors like that that you can sit down and talk to is, is really something special. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Dereliction of Duty, unusually, I think, for a first book or dissertation, did not come out with the university press. It came out with the trade press. Did you have that sense as you were writing that you wanted to speak to an audience beyond just Vietnam War historians or even just beyond your fellow officers, did you have a sense, even as you were doing the book, that this is something that general readers are going to be interested in? Did, did you have that in mind as you were writing? You know, I did. I thought it was, I thought it was a story that, that the American people would want to know, right? And, and it was the right time, right? Remember, Vietnam, of course, evoked tremendous emotion uh, across our, our nation, and now, you know, 30 years after the war, I think people were ready to come to grips with, with the war in, in a way that, that they maybe they weren't ready to do, uh, to do earlier. And so I wanted to write it for a general audience. You know, I, I finished the manuscript about the time of the American Historical Association Convention in Chicago uh, at, the, at, at that moment. 
So I went to yeah, you know, I went to Kinkos as you did back then. You know, <laughs> I got a bunch of you know, a bunch of uh, copies of the manuscript and and I handed them out at various university presses there at, uh, at who, those who would take it from me uh, at at the American Historical Association convention. And I got two calls, like in, in my hotel room, you know, because it's before, you know, before cell phones, right, uh, uh, with offers, you know, from university presses. So I was encouraged that, that hey, it's going to get, it's going to get published. I was excited about that. At, at the conference, um, this happened. You, you submitted the thing, t- and before you at, left the, the conference, the, I've never I left heard the of that conference. I, well, because you know they they have these they have tables set up right with their with their their latest you know the latest books and so forth and. You know, I just I just foisted my manuscript on, on a couple of the editors who were there at the uh, wow uh, a, a lot of them. A lot of, uh, I gave I gave out maybe maybe ten copies of the manuscript, uh, but I had I had two offers by the end of the conference. Uh, That's remarkable. I've never heard that happening before. <laughs> which was which was encur- it was encouraging, and you know, I mean, I I was I was very fortunate too. I mean, you know, I, I guess one of, one of the good things that Robert McNamara did is he wrote that. He wrote that memoir that was, I think, kind of a, a cynical attempt to manipulate history. Uh, yeah. You know, about the time I finished, and I think a lot of people were saying, "Wow, I wish we knew what the real story was in terms of McNamara's role." And and I I just finished a a manuscript that that in, in large measure detailed really his role in in those decisions that led to an American war in Vietnam. And then I came back to the history department, and I told my mentor uh, Cole Kingseed, who was my first professor of history at West Point when I was a freshman, uh, a plebe undergraduate, um, and then and it was my sponsor there while he taught there. Uh, and so, you know, the sponsor's the, the, the faculty member whose house you go over to on the weekends, you know, and and uh, and, and he was a great, uh, great mentor and a friend of mine. And he returned to the history department as a permanent professor there. And, and he read the manuscript and he said, you know, do, do you mind if I if I send this to Carlo Deste because wow. Carlo Deste is interested in this topic and you know he publishes with with Harper Collins and and uh, he might be able to advise you on a commercial press so he sent it to Carlo Deste Carlo Deste contacted me who's a, you know of course a wonderful uh, person and a, and a very accomplished military historian uh, wrote the definitive biography of Patton and wrote about so many uh, important you know, important campaigns in in, in World War. Uh, to in such an incisive way, including a great book on Anzio, for example. So, so Carlo, it was a thrill for me to get a call from Carlo Deste. He said, "Hey, do you mind if I send this to my editor, who was a guy named Buzz Wyeth at Harper Collins, a real gentleman and and uh, a very accomplished editor who had been editing books since 1946, right? And and had edited, I think, you know, some of the real seminal works in military history. So he he called me." Yeah, two days later, I think. I mean, very quickly, uh, with a, with an offer uh, from Harper Collins, which was which was thrilling for me because I knew I'd be able to maybe reach a wider readership with the book and so forth. So, I mean, I was just very fortunate. I mean, I, I you know I didn't really have an agent, I, a family a family friend represented me, you know, for the contract negotiations. Uh, I think he sent it out to Random House, who made a matching offer, and then and then Harper Collins, you know, made you know made the the final offer, which I always wanted to go with them anyway because. Buzz Wyeth uh, made the drive up from from New York and and uh, met me for lunch at the Thayer Hotel and I mean we we hit it off and I just thought what a, what a privilege it'll be to work with such a an accomplished editor and a real gentleman. Yeah, I think that's what you need. You need the the quality of the project. You need someone who believes in it, and you need someone who will sort of represent 
for you and, and advise you through that process. Dennis Showalter did that for me to get my first book published or it never would have happened if it hadn't been right. for Dennis. Um, Gosh, Mike, what a, what a fine person he was too. Yeah. I mean, and, and a character and, and a, a character. I mean, just a, a hoot. I mean, the guy was just so fun to be around and he had the best sayings, you know, he would sum up really the, the most important historical insights into a single phrase. Like, you know, he talking about Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union in World War II and Operation Barbarossa, he would say it was like David and Goliath, but David missed. You know, he would, he would always have these, these just great, these great sayings. He had one about attrition in World War One. He said, attrition cannot mean that two Frenchmen attack one German and the last guy alive drinks prune juice as a toast. That, that can't be the way you define attrition. Um, yeah, you have to have people who believe in what you're doing, but you have to give them something to believe in, which you obviously did with this project. Um, were you surprised at just how successful this book became? I mean, this became something that was on every reading list. I mean, in the, when I was advising graduate students and MA and PhD students, it was always on every list that we looked at. Were you surprised at just how popular it became? You know, I, I really, I, I don't think I was that surprised because I was so, you know, I, I, I was, I was so drawn to the story myself, obviously. Right. Cause I, you know, I, I dove into the research and, and, you know, I think, I think uh, my wife, Katie, thought I was crazy because like I would, you know, I would come home for dinner with our daughters and then go back in until I just, you know, couldn't write anymore. And then, and, you know, I was, I was really obsessed with, with telling this story because I thought it was an important story to tell. And, and I was, I was excited by what I was finding out, right. With these, these, uh, the, these archival collections that had not, nobody had access to previously. Uh, I, I'm really indebted to the Marine Corps Historical Association and, and another great, you know, historian, uh, General Ed Simmons, uh, who was who was ran the Marine Corps Historical Association for so many years. He got me into into the Commandant's papers, Wallace Green's papers, and I was in all these other collections. and And I would read, "Hey, you know, Wallace Wallace Green kept everything. He kept notes on all this. He he would come back from meetings and and dictate the the uh, you know the minutes of the meeting to his assistant, and then he would annotate those notes and put." NB, note to Bella, like next to next to the important passages. And I thought, well, I've got to get into these to, to this collection. Nobody had been got, had gotten into them before. And uh and and then General Simmons got me into 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 General Green's papers and and uh and it had the, the minutes of of meetings in the tank with the Joint Chiefs of Staff where that didn't exist anywhere else. Howard K. Johnson took notes on five by eight cards, and I was going through all those five by eight cards and 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 a, and and a researcher might not really make sense of that, right? Because it, it you know those those five by eight cards had a certain date on it. It had certain notes on it. But when you placed it in the context of the other documents from the National Archives, from General Earl Wheeler's papers, from Curtis LeMay's papers, then then it fit together, and you could piece this puzzle together and tell the story. And then, of course, the tapes of telephone conversations came out. Uh, uh, from the at, at the Johnson Library, and that provided another layer of of insight, and and uh, and then also it, it allowed it allowed me to tell stories within the book that I think kept readers interested. You know, I mean, I I, I don't think it was any great. <laughs> the book is not any great literary achievement for sure, man. But but uh, but at least I think there was enough color and personality in it, so that so that the reader would enjoyed learning the history. I think of of how. And, and why Vietnam became an American war. But I, I was, I was lucky, Mike. I mean, I, I got 
onto the right story at the right time uh, with, the, with the right access to materials, you know, to be able to tell the story. And then remarkably, this, this book is, is doing what it's doing. It's becoming popular. It's becoming influential. Correct me if I'm wrong, just as you're kind of moving from operational level assignments to the kind of strategic level assignments that you talked about in the book. So did that, did that experience of having written the book change the way you thought about strategy and the way that you thought about the way that these discussions and decisions had to take place? It must have, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the best educational strategy I could have had is to, is to really, you know, Sir Michael Howard said that the way that you need to study history, military history in particular, but really I think all history is in width, depth, and in context, right? And, and, and this was an opportunity to study decision-making and policy-making at the national level in tremendous depth, right? And, and, and I think that understanding really served me well in later assignments, especially as national security advisor and and I write in the concluding chapter of, of the, the, uh, the most recent book, Battlegrounds, really what I had learned from writing Dereliction of Duty and then what I did as National Security Advisor to at least try to not make the same mistakes. And, and uh, I, I think it was just an invaluable experience to, to be able to, to write the book uh, and then also to have assignments you know, in, in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan that I think allowed me to 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 draw on that on on that uh, knowledge base and and um, and and in a way that I, I think helped me do a better job serving uh, the commands that I was in and and doing a better job serving the country. So I, I want to switch to battlegrounds now. I want to make sure that we do talk about that book before we run out of time here. Uh, battlegrounds is a very different kind of book, whereas dereliction of duty, you're able to focus on one sort of limited in space and time event. In Battlegrounds, you really are moving back and forth in time. You're moving across virtually the entire globe. Um, how do you even begin to organize a book of that large a scope? How do you figure out what it's going to look like, what you're going to include, and what you're necessarily going to have to exclude? How much of the process of writing was taken up by those fundamental questions? Right. Well, uh, quite a bit of it. And of course, when I started to write it, I thought, what the heck did I get myself into with this, with a book of this scope? But, but I really felt, you know, a, a sense of, of, uh, of duty that I needed to try to, to, to try to explain, uh, make accessible to, to general, to general readers, the greatest challenges that we faced and what we should do about them as a way to maybe help reverse the polarization in our society and, and help us really understand better how we can work together to build a better future for generations to come. That was the purpose of the book. So I felt driven to do it. And now the question that you're asking is like, okay, well, how the heck do you do that? Well, I, I brought with me, I think, a, a certain amount of knowledge about these challenges from my career, from my, you know, the, the privilege that I had uh, serving in, in, in various jobs and especially as national security advisor. So I had a general base of knowledge, but really what the, writing this book was, was I think the best way to guide my self-education about each of these challenges. Now, I could not have written this book anywhere, I think, but at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And and and, and I write about this in the, in the last several paragraphs of, of Battlegrounds, about how fortunate I was uh, to, 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 to be able to write this book uh, at, at Stanford and, and, uh, and at the Hoover Institution, because I worked with amazing students, student research assistants. And what I did is I made a generic outline for each of these chapters, right? I'm an historian, so, you know, predictably, 
I thought each 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 of these challenges that I wrote about, whether it's 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 uh, the challenge from Putin's Russia or the Chinese Communist Party or the hostile states of Iran and North Korea or the jihadist terrorist problem set centered on South Asia or the Greater Middle East and or or emerging uh, battlegrounds and 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 contested spaces in cyberspace and in 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 space and associated with you know global issues like like climate change or health security. So it was it was a huge scope, but I I came up with like kind of a, a, gen, a generic outline for each chapter. Right, tell the story of how that challenge developed. Right, understanding how the recent past produced the present, I think is the first step of making a projection into the future. Then you know, tr- try to understand the nature of this particular challenge on its own terms. This is my borrowing of the of the term strategic empathy from from Zachary Shore. To in particular, try to understand you know the emotions, the ideology, the aspirations that drive and constrain the the other as part of the story. Then explain to the readers. So what? You know, why do they care? What should they care about this? What's at stake in this challenge? And then, and then finally, of course, what are the options? What are the options we that we can employ, or what are, what are the actions we can take, the efforts we can make to overcome these challenges, take advantage of opportunities, and, and build a better future? So that's kind of the standard outline. And then what what I did is I had conversations with my research assistants who were assigned to each chapter, and asked them to develop what I called evidence sheets that 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 that, that paralleled that particular outline. And, and the research that they did uh, really uh, was on one sheet of paper, typically, uh, that provided the evidence, the statistics, uh, the analysis from, from secondary literature, primary source materials uh, that were relevant to that outline. Uh, and then I matched that to the outline and, and did my own reading. And I would have maybe, you know, gosh, I, I would say, you know, 15 books out uh, on that particular topic across the big table. In the, in the Hoover Tower, the literal ivory tower in, uh, in the middle of Stanford's campus uh, on the 11th floor with a great view with these cathedral windows and, the, and you know, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the floor to ceiling bookcases and the ladder, the whole scene. Right. And, and, uh, and I would lay out the evidence sheets, refine the outline, have the books out and just start writing, you know. And and for me, I mean, your know, writing is rewriting. And so I would I would write maybe, you know, four times more. Than, than the chapter could bear. And then I would start to neck it down. And then I would ha- have within these documents conversations with my research assistants. Can you find this statistic? You know, what, what are, what's the contrary point of view to, to this point that I'm making? You know, can I anticipate counter arguments? And, and, and so we, we worked on this together with about 15 research assistants. And I'm telling you, it was a blast. It was like a, it was like a graduate seminar with them. And, you know, I had readers testing it out. <laughs> who were who were giving me feedback, and that was the audience I wanted to reach. By the way, anyway, I wanted to reach the younger generation as well. And then, you know, of course, I, I called, I imposed chapters on all my friends, you know, who who are experts much more than I am in these areas, and sent them early drafts, which they which they suffered through, and and provided me great feedback, you know, so and helped me improve the book immeasurably. So that was that was sort of the process was. This this interaction with research assistants across really a, almost a two year period, um, you know the development of these evidence sheets, the the writing, the rewriting and re editing, and sending it out for for uh, criticisms and suggestions and 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 refining it, and then of course, you know a, a friend of mine who's a sculptor, he's a really very accomplished sculptor. He's done a lot of you know popular stuff like the Jurassic Park 
you know, uh, uh, sculptures that were used, you know, as the basis for the animation and everything. And, uh, and I was talking to him, uh, about the book and how, like, I really wanted to do a good job with it. And I, I don't know when, if I'm going to be able to finish it. And he said, he said, Hey, you know, he said, projects like that are never finished. They're abandoned is what he told me. So he said, he said, at some point you have to abandon it. <laughs> at some point you got to just let it go out of the nest is the way I always think about it. And just see, see if it hits the ground or if it flies away, there's nothing else you can do. Well, I have a lot more things I'd like to talk about you, but I know your time is limited and I know that uh, I can see the clock starting to wind down. So I want to ask you really just two final questions. The last question is one I ask everybody, but the, the next to last question I want to ask in a controversial figure like Robert McNamara, uh, living in his mind for as long as you did, did it lead you to a kind of greater empathy for him, a greater dislike for him? How did spending so much time in in, in his world affect the way that you thought about him? Well, or any know, other I individual, think, if you'd rather talk about someone else. Yeah. No. Well, I, I think McNamara is a good a good a good example. I, I think what. It, what really convinced me is that somebody can be brilliant. I, he was, you know, nobody can accuse Robert uh, McNamara of being anything but a, but a formidable intellect, right? And, and, um, but, but, but flaws of character, and, 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 uh, and compromise of principle for expediency, um, you know, that that can that can it can lead to disaster, right? So. So uh, in a leader, is, is it more important to have someone who, who's brilliant or someone who is strong in character? And, and I think it always comes down on, on the character side, right? Because if somebody is strong in character, in particular, if they're, if they're secure in themselves, they're well-motivated, right? They're, they're there because of their sense of duty to the country and, you know, in the military, obviously, to their, to their fellow uh, servicemen and women. Uh, that, that base motivation combined with, you know, strength of character and humility allows you to, I mean, you can, you can, you can convene a whole lot of smart people right, around, around an issue. Uh, but so I, I think what, what McNamara's example is, is an example of how important character is in, in, uh, in a senior leader. Hmm. The last question that we have time for, uh, and it's one that I ask everybody that I talk to on the podcast, what are you reading right now? Okay, so I usually have about three or four different books going, right? So, so, uh, so uh, right now I'm, I'm reading I'm reading this really interesting book uh, by by Jorge Castaneda, America through through uh, foreign eyes. So it's how it's how uh, you know others around the world view America. Um, I'm going to interview him for a series that I do called Battlegrounds, which is a it's a series of, of, of long format interviews uh, with, uh, uh, with 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 world leaders. You know, I'm, I'm finishing Black Wave, uh, which is Kim Gaddis's book on the competition between uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and, uh, and 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 Iran. It's an extremely well well done book. Um, and and um, gosh, right behind me here, uh, I'm I'm uh, rereading. This edited volume on the imperial moment uh, by, by uh, Kim Kagan because I got an argument with Neil Ferguson about whether the America was an empire and I, I say it's not an empire and and so uh, I'm, I'm boning up on that so I can go toe to toe with Neil which is not no small task <laughs> and and, uh, and then I'm reading a, a wide range of books on on uh, on on, pre on presidents and presidential character. Rereading a lot of them uh, because I'm I'm writing uh, another book 
um, mainly about my time as national security advisor. And I want it to be a substantive book, you know, so, so I'm re, you know, rereading Fred Greenstein and, and, and uh, Alexander George and uh, James David Barber. And I've got a whole bunch of just, you know, memoirs stacked up um, as, as, as well as, uh, as well as books on presidential leadership and national security. I've got Peter Robbins book, presidential command and, and uh, you know, so I'm just kind of dabbling in, in, in those. So Gosh, and there are a bunch. There are a bunch of other books here that I'm. I'm started. I've started and in the middle of, and they're kind of dabbling in Syrian Requiem, uh, which is, uh, which is a, a a a great book on the Syrian civil war. I think the best one out there right now. Um, yeah, so a bunch a bunch of different different books always going, you know, so, and then then feel then feel guilty about like not finishing a lot of them, you know, but and moving on to the next one. Spoken like a true historian. My wife jokes that uh, my Myers-Briggs type must be ISBN because there's always books uh, stacked everywhere. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, you know, let me, t- I mean, Don Higginbotham, <laughs> who I mentioned before, right? I once asked him, I said, hey, have you read, you know, because you're a grad student, you now you want to strike up a conversation with your professor on it. And I asked him, I think maybe if, maybe it was Gordon Wood's latest book or something, Rad- Radicalization of the uh, of, of the American Revolution or something. And and he, he stopped, he said, HR, he said, you know, Historians do not read books; they use them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some truth in that. Too. <laughs> well, sir, I want to thank you. I know how busy you are. I want to thank you for taking the time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish we had more time, and hopefully, we'll get to continue the conversation at some point down the road. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.